Friday night. It's me, your host, Larry Luciato Crane. I am so happy to be with you tonight, hence the intro music. Let's get crazy tonight. The crisp, cold air has brought me to life, and I'm very excited to join you and discuss the latest on politics, current events, and everything else that's going on in our beautiful country right now. I'm glancing out at a cold and crisp window towards downtown Newark, New Jersey that is lit up with events going on at the Prudential Center, the bars busy, traffic up and down Broad Street, Empire State Building lit up a crimson, scarlet red, bridges and tunnels and railroads buzzing with life. I'm happy to be with you guys. We have a lot to talk about tonight. We have a great guest tonight. That couldn't make it last time, but he's back with us tonight. We had a lot going on this week. I want to remind you that anything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion as a private citizen. It does not reflect the opinion of any other entity. It does not reflect the opinion of anybody else. It's just me as a private citizen talking to you in my private capacity for entertainment purposes. Guys, what's going on? Jobs are up in this country. We created 531,000 jobs in the month of October across the country. Primarily, that job growth came from... Remember, I was talking a few weeks ago about uh, how different en- you know industries intersect with each other. And since there was a low demand for cars, there was a low demand for car parts and et cetera, et cetera. Well manufacturers that manufacture different components of automobiles are up in their hiring restaurants and amenities are up in their hiring we are back to 81 percent of the pre-pandemic workforce we are coming back strong and it's a beautiful 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 thing because we are coming back so strong and we will have neil back on at some point in the near future to discuss financial mechanisms and monetary policy and all the things he likes to discuss but the fed came out this week and they said they are going to gradually taper off the buying of bonds for those who are not familiar with that that's uh when you're buying bonds essentially what the fed does is it it purchases bonds from the united states government which are essentially uh IOUs from the U.S. government, IOUs, i.e., I'm going to give you, you know, $500 million. I'm going to buy it from you, buying an IOU with interest from you. I'm going to give you $500 million cash, and you're going to owe me, you know, $700 million, whatever it is in the future. The Fed has been rapidly buying these bonds throughout our pandemic issue to flood the economy with cash so that we can keep things churning and we can keep people paid and we can keep people fed with money in their pockets as we recover from the pandemic. As many of us have already discussed, inflation is a concern because there's so much cash flowing out there that the value of goods is going up. So the Fed has noticed this and they're going to ease They're buying of federal bonds and gradually taper it off every month from now until the middle of 2022. In the middle of 2022, the whole recovery bond buying program will come to an end. 
and hopefully by then we will gradually wind down inflation so the buying power of our dollars will go back up or remain as is so that it our wages can keep pace that's one of the latest economic news that's out there um and by the way, this is the mood I was just, this is the mood I was in this week. This is the mood I was in. This uh, smooth, uplifting, disco-y, you know, smooth mood. And I want you guys to know what I do when I when I get ready to come on the show. Leo, what's up, bro? My fellow, we're going to do a, a joint thing, Leo and I, because we are fellow Dolphins fans, Rutgers fans, Devils fans. We've had a lot going on recently. And so uh, Leo and I got a little something cooking up for you by the end of the year, hopefully. Uh, so what's up, Leo? But I want you guys to know uh, what I do when I do my little pre-podcast regimen. I listen to the playlist that I put together. I listen to the playlist on repeat like two times. And I generally pace back and forth in front of my huge picture window looking at the Newark skyline and the New York City skyline. And sip a little bourbon and I smoke a little Cuban cigar and I get ready for it. So Whatever the music is that's coming through the speakers when I'm on the air is whatever the vibe has been all week for me. And this is the vibe. Anyway, back to current events and news. There's something I want to talk to you guys about tonight, and it's about partisanship, and it's about politics, and it's about the recent elections that occurred this week. But first, I want to touch on something else that's been at the forefront of our collective societal dialogue. And that would be the Ahmad Aubrey trial. And and it's funny, right? Because we frame these things in their winnowed down, you know, boiled down to media meme names. So we're calling it the Ahmad Aubrey trial, but it's he's not on trial, okay? He was the victim of a murder, and the individuals who murdered him are on trial. It's a murder trial. The news coming out of that trial this week was the fact that the defense had used a bunch of their challenges to strike a multitude of African-American jurors. So the current composition of the jury is 11 white people and one African-American person on the jury. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about this, and it's warranted. People are a little bit disturbed that in a case so racially charged as this, there's only one black juror on the jury and 11 white jurors. Now, just so people understand the way that criminal law works, uh, and as an attorney, again, not speaking in my professional capacity or in any capacity as somebody currently doing a job, just speaking to you with, with knowledge I have from that arena, the defense always, and generally in most states, the defense has more challenges than the prosecution. And there's good reason for that, right? The defendant is on trial for their freedom, for their life in many cases. You know, a lot is at stake for the defendant. So the our jurisprudence over the years has given the defense more challenges, right? They, they have the ability to get rid of more jurors than the state does. So in this case... The defense struck a multitude of jurors. Now, what happens when you strike so many jurors and it seems to be on the basis of race or gender or something along those lines, the state or the defense, whoever's doing it, can make a motion to say, hey, 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 
what you're doing is discriminatory. You struck everybody just because they were black or just because they were a woman or et cetera, et cetera. And when they file that motion, the judge has to look at it and the judge has to see, was there some other reason why you got rid of these jurors other than race, other than gender? And in this case, the judge reviewed. So the state filed a motion in this in the Ahmad Arbery case. The defense struck a bunch of black jurors. The, the state, the prosecution then filed a motion saying this is discriminatory, right? They only struck them because it was black jurors. It was a pattern. The judge then looked at that motion and then he talked to defense and he talked to the state and defense said, no, no, no. Here are all the reasons why I struck those jurors. It's not because of race. It's because of this or it's because of that. And when the judge then makes that decision, as CLR is pointing out, when the judge makes that decision, he has to look at the reasons why defense did what he did. And in this case, the judge said, look, it raises my eyebrows. Why were so so many jurors struck that were African-American? However, upon reviewing the reasons set forth by defense, there's nothing further that I can do because he has valid reasons for each juror that he struck. And so the judge is in a position where there's not much else he can do because, again, and, and in this country, especially with current dialogue and current narratives that are taking place there's this grand narrative that everything goes for the state's way the deck stacked for the state etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I want people to understand that despite you know historic systemic you know mechanisms that have it at times made the state kind of given people deference to the state Make no mistake, in our system, in our criminal justice system, the deck is intentionally stacked against the state, at least in theory, right? At least in theory. And so the judge in many instances where we have criminal cases, in many instances, the judge has to give deferential treatment to the defendant. And in many instances, the defense counsel has more leeway in, in using their preemptory strikes. And so this is not necessarily surprising. Is it good overall? We can make our own determinations, right? Hopefully at trial, it bears out properly and hopefully justice is served. You know, people are entitled to a jury of their peers and the community should hear cases and it shouldn't be dependent on just race, but race should be a factor. It should be balanced. But that's what happened in the Ahmad Arbery trial so far. And I think people – I don't think everybody understands that. So I just wanted to kind of let that out. I wanted to discuss that. I wanted to put that out there in terms of, you know, from a legal standpoint. Um, and and CLR points out something, and I'll let you guys look at it. I mean, that's it's a politically charged kind of thing. So that's one of the reasons you would, you know, do something like that. But – it's interesting because the way criminal trials are conducted, this is kind of how it goes. And the judge has his options and what he can do and what he can't do on motion. The prosecution did make a motion because of the discriminatory way it looked. You're striking so many black jurors. And yet they had a reason for each juror, whether you know you believe it as a private citizen or not is, is your business. But when you're a judge, it's hard to 
rule against an attorney if he's got those reasons to back him up and they are individualistic reasons for each person that he's dismissed. And that goes either side, right? And so that would work if it was an African-American defendant and the defense attorney was dismissing all white jurors. He would make the same arguments and the judge would have to rule the same way. Is it problematic, especially in that area? Many of us would say yes, right? Many of us would have reservations and the judge himself had reservations. But we are left with what we're left with under the law. And so we've got to stick with that. That's what I want to say on the Ahmaud Arbery thing. I I hope justice is served. And and look, with that case, I just want to say one other thing with that case. That case to me is like, you know, we spend so much time and I understand why because of, you know, the state and the police force and because the state is a different actor than private citizens. We rightfully assign more responsibility and a higher standard to the state, i.e. police. But when you're looking at cases like this, these racially charged cases that have come across in the past several years, I think two cases really stand out to me anyway, a little bit more than some of the other ones that have garnered more attention. And that is the Trayvon Martin case and the Ahmaud Aubrey case. Because these are two cases where, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to discuss the character of the individuals involved in the other shootings or the police. Or I'm, I'm just trying to set them aside for a minute. But a case like Ahmad Aubrey, this is a kid who's jogging, <laughs> who's walking through a construction site, which. <laughs> How many of us do on a day? I mean, there's people I know in Newark who are bloggers or video people who walk through abandoned sites and construction sites and things all the time, like second nature. It's not doing anybody any harm. And these are vigilantes. To me, um, the the Ahmad Arbery, and, and it's not my place, and I'm not portending to know everything about the case. But as a private citizen, as a private observer from afar, let the court system do what it must. That's fine. Let the fact finders find the facts. But from my perspective, I would characterize the Ahmad Aubrey case as a modern day lynching. A modern day lynching. And I mean, there's no equivocation, right? I mean, George Floyd, that was a murder, a blatant murder. We all saw it. But the dynamics were police. Somebody was questioned. This is this kid was jogging. (laughs) And some guys, some good old boys rode through in a pickup truck and he wound up dead. I mean, this is this deserves a ton of attention. Not that the other ones don't, but this really deserves a lot of attention. And so I'm I'm just interested to see what happens with the case. I'm really interested. It's unfortunate that the jury is comprised the way it is, but I'm not going to cast dispersions on a jury. Just because they are predominantly white doesn't mean they can't be objective. So I want to see what happens in that case. I'm interested to see what happens in that case. And uh, we'll talk about it as it as it unfolds. But I just wanted to lay out the jury issues now. Next on the agenda, next what's going on today in this in this current events world we're in, the vax mandate. Joe Biden has doubled down on this vax mandate. The rules are out about this vax mandate. 
anybody but this, so this is this has to be happening by January, January 2022. By January 2022, anybody private entity or public entity that employs more than 100 people, they have to, they have to vaccinate their employees or require mandatory weekly testing of their employees or face repercussions from OSHA. This is happening by January. There's an uproar. Several states' attorney generals, including the one from Texas, has filed lawsuits against the federal government, claiming that this is unconstitutional, that this mandate is outside the scope of the law. Biden is doubling down. Do you agree? Do you not agree? So Leo says it's happening next week in Jersey. Yeah, in Jersey, this is starting next week, which is I'm going back to work full time next week. I had to submit uh, proof of vaccination. Now, do you agree with this or do you not? This is a hot button issue, and this feeds into some other things I'm going to talk about tonight. But this is a this is a hot button issue, guys. And a lot of people really are not happy about this. Other people are celebrating it because they say, look, I mean, you look at Biden. He was somebody who said from jump he was going to let the facts guide him. He was going to be scientific based and he was going to be heavy handed, for lack of a better term, when it came to mandating the vaccine. So you see Leo in here. He's got a he had to provide proof of vaccine. CLR is saying this is awesome. There's no reason not to get vaccinated. He cheers on Biden. And Vree says his company, a private company located in New Jersey, already started implementing this policy. Now, do we agree or do we not agree? That's your personal opinion, and I'll let you have it. Um, I understand why Biden and then Rick says, you got to force them. You got to force them. Um, yeah, well, Vree, okay, so it's a global company with Vree. He's just, he just works in New Jersey, but it's a global company. So this is the new mandate. It's come out. Biden's not playing any games. People are mad about it, and this is where we're at. Now, on one side, you'd say, look, we have to implement this because there could be another variant, and I've discussed the vaccine so many times on here, ad nauseum. I mean, there's no point in me going on a long soliloquy about the vaccine again. I've discussed it and discussed it and discussed it. I continue to. I think we need to vaccinate as many people as possible because it's the only way we have to prevent the evolution of further variants which threaten to be more dangerous and to derail our economy. That's my opinion. Do I personally care when people don't get vaccinated? I don't have a huge... I don't have a huge objection to people who don't get the vaccine. And now Leo says something that's intriguing, right? He says that Debbie was told not to get the vaccine because she could get really sick. And some people have issues where getting the vaccine, if their doctor advises them not to, they may have an exception and that they should talk to HR. Well, here's the interesting thing, right? There are people that have exceptions. It is people, and she's got the first dose, but according to her doctor, uh, getting a second dose could cause her to get really sick. People do have reasons for not getting the vaccine. Do I think most people should get the vaccine? Yes, I do. But I under also I also understand why 
this is such a hot button issue. I do. I understand why. And so I don't know whether I agree or not. I understand why Biden's doing it. I understand why people are suing. I don't understand the irrational vaccine protesters, the people that just come up with nonsense, you know, reasons why they can't get it. These, you know, conspiracy theorists on YouTube, et cetera. On the other hand, like they're already starting to recommend a third booster or second booster, a third shot. Am I somebody who wants to jump up and get it? Not necessarily, not because I'm against it, just because I don't feel the urgency. I'm young, healthy. I beat COVID. On the other hand, if my employer mandated it, would I get it? Yes, I would. Of course, I don't see the reason not to. This is just an interesting issue, right? I think it drives a lot of our current dialogue, which is going to take me kind of to the next segment and the overall message I want to get across tonight. But first, I want to just go to uh, another. And Rick says, yeah, he's not good with any mandates beyond the initial, right? Because it starts to get our sense of American freedom starts to kick in, right? And you're like, what if they, well, what if they mandated the flu shot, right? What if they mandated us to get the vaccine every six months? I mean, now do you start feeling like they're intruding upon your personal autonomy? And us as Americans, does that just strike the wrong chord? It very well may, right? And this, this, this vaccine thing. And again, I'm for the vaccine. I'm I'm for urging people and applying certain pressures to get people to take it because I think the more people that are vaccinated, the less chance we have of variants developing. The more we could stay open, etc. And again, I've talked about this so many times, but. This bleeds into a political discussion which spans really both sides of the political spectrum. This is not just conservatives or Trumpies who are denying it, although that may appear to be the bulk of it. This spans like a wide range of political ideologies. And it even spans people who are not anti-vax but simply are more, dare I say, pro-choice. And they rightfully call out the hypocrisy when they say, well, my body, my choice. I'm with my doctor. My doctor's saying not to get it. How are you going to penalize me? It's just an interesting debate. And I will get to that core issue in a minute because, it again, it ties in with my main message for the monologue tonight. But first, just to touch on the bipartisan infrastructure deal, we have a, a framework now. The bipartisan element, the roads and bridges, the hard infrastructure has long been passed by the Senate in a bipartisan fashion with 19 Republicans also voting for it. It has been sitting on Pelosi's desk. It has been sitting in the House. Progressives in the House have said that they will not vote on it. And remember, as soon as they vote on it, it goes right to Biden's desk. Biden signs it. We get shovels in the ground. Um, They will not sign it until the companion bill that I like to call the Bernie bill, the expansion of the social safety net bill is passed in tandem. This has long been the strategy. This week, Pelosi said, look, we have a framework. The framework is all the way down to 1.9. 1.9 trillion from 3.5 trillion. And we have a framework that we all agree on. Will you vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill this week and the procedural vote to pass the $1.9 trillion reconciliation bill, even though it's still got to go through the Senate? 
That was Pelosi's plan. Progressives once once again balked. They said, no, we will not vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. In fact, we will tank. We will tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We will tank it unless the human infrastructure bill is passed in tandem. This has long been the strategy. It was another setback for Pelosi. It was another setback for everybody. Progressives are saying they don't trust. They don't trust Manchin and they don't trust Cinema to pass the human infrastructure bill once they've let the hard infrastructure bill go to Biden's desk. It's another setback. And now here's how this ties in. I, first of all, I just want to talk about this week. There were elections in Virginia. There was a referendum in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There was an election uh, in New Jersey. And there was a lot of discussion. A lot of discussion about the fact that progressives took losses all over the place. And that that there was almost what looked like a red wave permeating through Virginia, New Jersey, especially down ballot. There was a close governor's race in New Jersey. In Virginia, the Republican won the governorship. In New Jersey, the state Senate president, the state Senate president, Steve Sweeney, who's been in office for so long, who's the state Senate president, was a favorite to run for governor at one time, was defeated. He's out, was defeated by a local truck driver and union official. A little ironic, a union official who's running on the Republican ticket, but nonetheless, he was. He was defeated by him. There was a lot to talk about this red wave. And some of the reasons that people set forth for the reason why there was this red wave was that the American people and people in these states were dissatisfied with the fact that the Biden administration has shown no results thus far, right? That the Democratic legislative agenda has stalled in Congress and they have not passed anything save for the one stimulus bill that they passed as soon as they took office. And I had an argument today with an individual who will be a guest on the show in due time, and he's already been a guest in previous episodes. In our conversation was, you know, him saying, and this is the same thing we go through every time, right? Every time progressives take a loss, they say, well, we've got to go more progressive. We got to be harder. We got to stick to our morals more. That's what the people want. They want more of us doubling and tripling and quadrupling down. We got to be more radical. And Republicans do the same thing when they lose. And so he's trying to maintain this idea that, you know, we lost because we're not radical enough. And one of his main arguments as to why progressives took some a walloping this week was because Biden hadn't gotten anything done. And I said, playing devil's advocate, I said, well, yeah, they could have had the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill done in August. They could have had that done in August. And that would have been something to show. And let me tell you, it'd be a little hard in Virginia and Jersey to argue against what Democrats are doing if union people hard laborers regular laborers architects engineers you know people involved in mass transit in the executive and the the labor level had shovels in the ground already if we were building a massive tunnel and bridge over the and under the hudson river right now in new jersey it'd be hard to argue against what progressives were accomplishing right 
Same in Virginia, same across the nation. Now, they could have passed. And you know I've been beating the drum. You guys know I've been beating the drum relentlessly for months, for maybe a year, on passing this bipartisan hard infrastructure bill. And I said they could have done that. But progressives in Congress have held it up. And he said, no, 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 the moderates, they're obstructionists. You know, Cinema and Mansion, they're obstructionists. If they weren't obstructionists, we could have passed that bill. And I said, look, I said, this, this thing where you double down, where you double down on your ideology and you double down on your side, no matter what, and you make bad arguments and you refuse to acknowledge objectivity is a problem. And what I said was... You saying that Manchin and Cinema are obstructing the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill because they haven't agreed on the second bill is akin to you telling me, look, I really, 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 really need to sell this piano. I got to get rid of it. The wife's bitching at me. I got to move a couch in that place where it is. I got to get rid of it. I got to sell this piano. And I say, okay, I'm down to buy the piano. I'm down. I'm ready to buy it tomorrow. You say, okay, but if you buy the piano... Then I also need you to drive to California with me to pick up this car I'm trying to buy. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) The piano and the car, it's two separate situations. I don't know if I have the time to travel to California. I don't know about that. I'll buy the piano like right now. I'll buy, I got the cash. I'll buy the piano for you right now. But I don't know. Let's talk about California later. Let's talk, let's let's talk about that later. And that person saying, how dare you obstruct the sale of the piano? You won't buy this piano. You're such an obstructionist. That's silly, right? That's disingenuous. That's that's not fair, right? The truth is there are two separate bills here, right? There's the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill, which deals with roads and bridges and tunnels, which we desperately need. And I talked to you last week about what it also entails. It also has carbon capture facilities regionally, which would reduce our carbon footprint nationally and reduce global warming. The human infrastructure bill has additional climate change measures, but also has this expanded child tax credit where you get paid every month for having children. It also has these other issues, these other things. And there's a healthy debate that should occur regarding that spending bill. Democrats, including Joe Biden, and this is why his this is part of the reason Afghanistan's another and is on and on. The border's another. There's a lot of reasons why Biden's approval rating is in the toilet right now. And this is one of them. He chose in conjunction with AOC and Jayapal in conjunction with Bernie Sanders. He chose to link the two bills because not because they belonged together. Not because they belong together. But because, and you're right, God's dog, you didn't realize that? Murphy is a hardcore progressive. Bernie Sanders came to New Jersey a couple weeks ago and declared that Bernie Sanders was one of the most, if not the most, progressive governor in New Jersey, in the country. Phil Murphy, one of the biggest things that they attacked him on was that he said, if taxes are your issue, then New Jersey's not your state. He raised taxes. He's implemented a lot of progressive things, a lot of progressive programs. He has run on a progressive platform. He is unabashedly progressive. Similar to de Blasio in New York City, they are both from Massachusetts, by the way. Both went to school up in Massachusetts and then moved to New York City and moved to New Jersey, respectively. Murphy is a certainly a progressive. Um, 
So anyway, um, back to what I was saying. And Leo put something in there that everything's too black and white. Leo, that's exactly what I'm going to get to in a second. And I went back and forth with um, this guy, you know, about this obstructionism and et cetera, et cetera. And I said they could have had a win, but they were being disingenuous. They were linking two bills that didn't belong linked together because they thought that was the best leverage play they had. Right. We'll hold moderates feet to the fire on something we all agree on to try to extort as much as we can for what we want. Now, they've been compromising. They're down to one point nine trillion. I actually think this is going to pass now. I think they're going to pass both bills, but it's dragging out. Anyway, when I was talking to my friend and we were going back and forth, similar to how Rick just put in the chat, there was this idea that, again, the reason that they lost in Virginia, the reason that New Jersey was so close, all of this was because people weren't radical enough, right? They weren't far enough. And it was interesting because in New Jersey, right, you had a Republican candidate in New Jersey who was not a Trump supporter, who had criticized Trump so many times in the past that it actually was a hard, a rough primary for him, Jack Cittarelli, because he was so not in the Trump team that other primary Republicans attacked him for not being Trump enough. He went out and campaigned on a on a message of, I know New Jersey's issues. And again, I'm not endorsing anybody. I'm not telling you who I voted for. I'm just talking about generally the what happened in New Jersey as an observer. Jack Cittarelli campaigned on, we're going to get certain things done. We are going to solve certain problems that New Jerseyans care about, etc. Phil Murphy who by all accounts objectively had done a good job in the state. It's not like he fumbled anything massively in the state. He ran on more of a national progressive platform forward, forward, you know, hold the line forward, stop Trump. We don't like Trump, et cetera, et cetera. The election was close, right? And what seemed to be the case in both Virginia and New Jersey was that people were really concerned about their own issues, right? They worried about if their kids were going to wear masks in school, whether you agree or not. They worried about their taxes. They worried about cultural issues, critical race theory, that debate, which is, well, I'll have a whole episode on that debate. That debate is so misconstrued, it's not even funny. No one on either side seems to really be understanding what that debate's about. And that's another topic, so I'm not going to get into it. But they care about what's being taught in schools. They care about all these, all these things. And I found it interesting that progressives on the one hand were saying we didn't go radical enough. We didn't go hard enough. We didn't do all this enough. And then I'm watching New Jersey 12, right? News 12, New Jersey. And then I'm watching Channel 8, which is PBS New Jersey, which are two local channels. And they are really delving into because they know New Jersey, the Democrats, the Democrat commentators on those channels and the Republican commentators on those channels are delving into the issues, right? Like, why did this person win and that person? Why is this close? Well, because he talked about this issue that we know about. He campaigned here strongly. He didn't campaign there strongly. The turnout in this county is good. The turnout in that county is bad, etc. right? And that all made sense because as a local New Jersey, and it makes sense. 
And in Virginia, from what I understand, there was a, a bad publicity from the Democratic candidate that he was essentially saying parents should stay out of the curriculum of their students in schools. And, you know, parents don't want to hear that. That's not what they want to hear. So there were blunders in some instances in Virginia with with the Democratic candidates. But it was funny because I turned on CNN just to see what CNN was saying because News 12 was on a commercial break. So I turned on CNN and CNN wasn't talking about the actual nitty gritty issues as to why these races were going the way they were going. They weren't talking about people having nuanced and complex opinions and voters who might have voted for a moderate Democrat or a Democrat or against Trump a year ago now voting for Republicans in Virginia, New Jersey. Remember, Virginia went blue for Biden by like 10 points. New Jersey went blue for Biden by I don't know how many points, double digit points. And now Murphy's winning by 2% right now. And Virginia, the, the Democrat lost. And they're trying to understand why. And CNN... CNN, instead of talking about the real issues on the ground, like why does Jack Cittarelli come close? Why did the Democrat lose in Virginia? Instead of discussing the nitty gritty ins and outs of why this is the case and welcome, Paizo, I see you. And I know this is an issue that, that we've discussed. So why CNN wasn't talking about the nitty gritty, the real reasons people might have voted a certain way. As soon as I turn on CNN, the first thing I see out of the commentator's mouth is, well, see, this just shows, you know, people are racist. You know, there's just a lot of racists in these states. And, you know, people, they're just racist. And then somebody posted a quote on Facebook. It's, it was from one of the commentators that said, you know, people didn't like Trump's racism because it was too racist, but they prefer the milk toast racism. Yeah, it's the milk toast racism in Virginia and in New Jersey. That's what did it. Because critical race theory, if you don't agree with critical race theory, you're a milk toast racist, but you're racist. And then I saw another comment on Twitter somewhere. It said, yeah, the reason this was so close and the Virginia race was the way it was, was because um, people don't care about the insurrection. You know, they just don't care about the insurrection. And because they don't care about the insurrection and they kind of secretly favor the insurrection, that's why they voted for Republicans. That's why. Totally missing the actual on the ground reasons people may have voted for the Republicans. It's got to be because they're racist. It's got to be because they don't care about the insurrection. They love Trump. You know what the problem with that line of thinking is? It's thinking that everybody's vote is always constantly some huge macro culture war vote that has to do with what happened last year rather than understanding that their vote has so much to do with what they're doing in their current lives individually now and like leo said before it's too black and white it's too grandiose it's too brink and that's what i wanted to say today we've got to stop we've got to stop with the brinksmanship i was speaking to people the other day and when they were talking about Chatterelli losing the election to Murphy and Murphy winning, their comments were, thank God. Oh, my God. Thank God. I was so nervous, et cetera, et cetera. Look, I understand you wanting a Democrat to win or you wanting a Republican to win based on your political persuasion, based on certain issues that you may value. That's perfectly normal as a voter in this country. It's perfectly normal to have values. But this isn't Trump every election now. Trump had issues because Trump was an overt racist. Trump was an overt 
xenophobe. Trump was an overt incompetent. Trump was an overt person who was trying to undermine our democracy by way of misinformation, false messaging, uh, the tools of tyranny and things such as that. He was somebody who was trying to normalize celeb culture and ignorance and, you know, somebody with lack of expertise as being a leader of us. Okay. This was somebody trying to do that. That I understand people saying Trump was on the edge. We had to beat Trump. Trump was a problem. Thank God Trump lost. I undersee, I see that. I see that. But it's not going to be like that every election. And we have to stop pretending that your radical side every time, if they don't win, it's apocalypse now, right? Oh, my God, if Murphy lost, we were going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, my God, Jack Chitterelli was going to burn and scorch the earth of New Jersey. Jack Chitterelli was an assembly person for so long in this state. Jack Chitterelli is a known moderate. He cared about transportation issues. Yeah, you might not like every issue he has. He might be against abortion more so. He's more conservative. He's more conservative. So you don't want him in. But it's not the end of the world if he were to win. And it's not the end of the world that Murphy won. Murphy won and all of a sudden there's still all this, you know, there was voter fraud and this and that. If there was legitimate voter fraud, by all means, report it to the proper authority and it will be investigated by the authorities of the state of New Jersey. And again, I say that privately. That will happen. People will do that. But it's not the end of the world if one of the other wins because they are both accomplished, competent, decent people. And not everything, and Vree, right, it's like if your side wins, it's fraudulent, and if your side wins, it's because we didn't go hard enough, but if my side wins, it's because we have this mandate, and everybody agrees with everything we do. Here's my thing, and the other thing I got into the argument with, with this person earlier today was this, and this is what I want to talk about, about this. We don't have to constantly be on brink, right? There are. It's okay to have different ideas. It's okay to have different ideas that compete with each other. It's okay. You could have conservative ideas and liberal ideas, right? And in given elections and given times for your given issue, sometimes the Republican might be the right vote and sometimes the Democrat might be the right vote. And I wish we had more parties to choose from because then that person might be the right vote. We try to cram all these issues and individual things into two parties and then we act like it's the end of the world if the other party wins. We got to stop that. That's what's making people so crazy. That's what's destroying our dialogue. That's what's destroying our ability to solve our problems. And what I told this person, because he said like, many people say to me over and over again is they accuse me they accuse me of being moderate or being centrist for the sake of being moderate or for the sake of being centrist they are accusing me essentially they're mirroring right they're 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 projecting right they twist any issue to make it go onto the right or the left they have to constantly feel that their party or their side is right no matter what i don't The reason I'm in the middle is because I will go wherever the truth and reality takes me. I don't have an allegiance to a certain side. They're trying to accuse me of doing what they do. They're like, you'll twist reality just to find the centrist position. And that is BS. Let me clarify right now what this podcast is about. Let me clarify what centrism and moderation is about as I define the terms. Okay? 
Here's how I define the terms. Moderate to me is wherever the truth takes me, i.e., right? There are some situations where the moderate position to me, the centrist position, is held by one party. I will give you an example. Voting rights. There is a voting rights bill right now that's being held up in Congress due to Republican obstruction. There is no right answer to that except we have to pass voting rights. We've got to pass the voting rights bill. There is no right answer to that except that obstructing a voting rights bill in this country is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. That's the centrist position, not because I've chosen the centrist position, because I have to be centrist. It's because that's just where the centrist logical position takes you. And the Democrats happen to be right smack on the tack of the centrist position right there, which is the only real position there is. Republicans are so far out of the whack on that. There's no debating it. I'm not finding the middle ground between the Democrats and Republicans, which would be do a little bit of voting rights, but not a ton, just just to be centrist. No, I'm saying break the filibuster to pass the Voting Rights Act. Break the filibuster. That's what I'm saying, because that's common sense. But then when you talk about the infrastructure bill and the progressives are holding it up, but the infrastructure bill is needed. Well, the progressives are too far left. And you know who's right on that? The Senate Republicans and the moderate Democrats. They're smack on the centrist, smack on the objective point of view. Passing infrastructure is the objective, common sense thing to do. So I'm centrist on that. I'm not trying to finagle myself to wind up center all the time. The center is the center no matter what. It's the parties who glide back and forth over it. I stay static. I know where I am. It's where logic is. So that's just something to keep in mind. We have to stick to the logic. And sometimes you may vote Republican. You may vote Democrat because the voting, the Republican or the Democrat in the race may be in the where the logic is. They may be where your issue is. This idea that you anybody who votes Republican is racist. Anybody who votes Democrat is a, a culture warrior SJW. That's all crap. That's just what the media and the parties feed you. So to keep you off task so that we can't have legitimate, intelligent conversations with each other so that we can't come to solutions and we can't elect the best people for the job. And I've had it with that. I've had it with that. And those are just some examples of it. I I think what Leo said is right. These elections didn't show us that, oh, my God, Democrats aren't far enough left. It didn't show us that everybody loves Trump. It didn't show us any of that. What it said was, what it said was, That people care about issues. People care about local issues. People care about issues that affect them. And another thing I told this person when we were talking back and forth, I wasn't saying, he's like, well, people want healthcare. People people want a lot of things. But when you tell them the price tag, they think about whether they want it or not. People really want in this country, they want to be safe. They want the ability to make a living. They don't want impediments and inequality that prevent them from getting a living. They don't want to be discriminated against no matter who they are, what gender, what race, what culture. They want the government to take care of their bridges and roads and they want their schools funded. It's not that hard to figure out what people want. It's the parties that try to take those core tenets of what voters want and make them malleable to their given agendas and try to market to them. 
And the other thing I'll say is this before we pivot and we bring our guest on in a few minutes. The other thing I'll say is this, right? There's so much discussion about, oh, they didn't do this. They didn't accomplish that. They didn't accomplish this. They didn't accomplish that. Let me tell you something. Voters, it's sad, and this is why we're in the predicament we're currently in. Voters don't really know what they're getting or what programs are implemented on a given basis, right? With Obamacare, so many people got health insurance. No one lost their health insurance for the most part. But the marketing, the marketing against Obamacare was so strong that it cost Democrats in the midterms, right? It's sad to say, but it's not the actual policy that's been implemented that matters so much to voters, It's not so much what they're actually getting. It's not so much what's actually happening. It's more what's marketed and how it's marketed, right? We could pass the infrastructure bill. And if it's marketed with pictures of valiant American workers on the TV with great music behind it and American flag waving and people of all races and creeds shoveling and working on a bridge or a tunnel or a monument, something we can all be proud of, or a commuter on a high speed train, then it's going to elicit a positive reaction from the, the public. But if we pass a bill... And the marketing is, they're draining your pockets, all this money wasted into a bridge to nowhere. Then the marketing and the the people are going to say, I don't like it. You spent money and you didn't do anything. The government can't be trusted, right? It's all about messaging. It's all about marketing. Is that good? No, that sucks. But we've got to stop arguing about what the voters said this, the voters said that. The voters just want what they want, which is security, the government to take care of their transportation and roads, the ability to make a living peacefully and not to be discriminated against. That's what they want. You can make everything else malleable around your ideology and it's still going to be BS. What these elections this week told us was that when politicians hunker down on the issues people care about and not some grandiose vision and not some talking down to everybody like you must be racist if you don't agree with this and not talking down to everybody like, you know, everybody's got to be shut out of the border. We got to ban Muslims. We gotta, if you just talk to them about their issues at home at their front door, they're going to vote for you. They're more likely to vote for you than if you have these grandiose things and you talk down to everybody on either side. And my position is these algorithms, these media messages are killing us because if we paid attention to the voters, the voters got rid of Trump, but then they backlashed in least Virginia and they elected a Republican. Why? Is it because they're so whimsical? No, there were differences with the turnout. I'm not going to say there wasn't differences with the turnout, right? More conservatives turned out than than Democrats in this election. That's, that's a factor. But. People are telling us that they don't like radical craziness on either side. They just want calm. They want to live their life. America's about living your life free of the BS. And that's what people want by and large. And they're going to vote for people who are not going to shake the whole earth around them and cause crazy trouble. That goes for Trump. That goes for anybody else. And that's what I mean when I talk about centrism. What I, what I mean when I talk about centrism is just a basic, objective conversation. You guys know that because you guys listen to us. This isn't just this two-side, bro, the world's going to end if this person wins. I can't believe he won. If he wins, it's over for me. No, it's not. He just has a differing point of view. And the other thing people need to realize is once they're in office, 
there's differing sides to this thing, right? There's a huge country, 300 plus million people in this country. Not everybody agrees. In fact, the two-party system is BS because the two-party system acts like we only have two sets of issues. There's Green Party voters, there's environmental voters, there's uh, money, wages voters, there's business voters, there's corporate voters, there's Main Street business voters, there's hunting voters, there's anti-hunting voters, there's school voters, there's you know international trade voters. There's so many different voters. And when you get in office, there's going to be certain things that everybody agrees on and certain things they don't. That's representative democracy, right? This idea that when I get in office, I'm going to jam through what I say I'm going to do rather than when I get in office, I'm going to represent both sides. I'm going to represent everybody. And and when Murphy made his victory speech, to be fair, when Murphy made his victory speech, he didn't say this is a mandate to just run over everybody with progressivism. He said, I hear you, New Jersey. I hear you, New Jersey. We have to listen to you, and I'm here to represent everybody in New Jersey, not just one side. That's true, right? What's this idea that when you get in, if you don't jam through everything you want, if you don't jam through all your priorities, you're going to lose. That's how to govern. What's that about? No, it's not. Half the country doesn't agree with you. And on certain issues, you might even only have a third, a quarter, an eighth of the country that does agree with you. You have to take the compromises and the joint solutions that you come up with together you have to come up with the solutions together. Good point, Leo. You have to come up with this solutions together and then get what you can get and accomplish together. The infrastructure bill is a good example, and there is climate change provisions in there. You can get that, then you take it and you debate something else later. You're not going to get everything you want. One party rule is exactly what we don't value in this country, whether it's Republican or Democrat. This idea that you're going to shove things through is no good unless you fall in the moral center. The moral center with voting rights, yeah, shove it through because they're just being obstructive. That's unacceptable. Other things like infrastructure, no, there's a discussion to be had about the expansion of the social safety net, and there's a discussion to be had about roads and bridges. Get it done. That's all I'll really say about about the bipartisan, you know, the partisanship that's going on, and about what happened this week. We gotta we gotta fix the messaging, guys. We gotta do better with the messaging. We gotta get to a better place with the messaging. We really do. We really do. We really, really do. And it's just, that's just, that's just where we are. And I just wanted to stress that. And now I have uh, the guest coming on. And I just wanted to touch base with him very quickly. So he's coming on. Now, he, we missed him last show. I am very excited about this guest. I can't wait to talk to him. I'm going to wait to kind of introduce him and everything until he gets on because I want him to kind of introduce himself. It's an, it's an awesome dude, and I, I hope you guys will enjoy it. And I'm going to get him in here right now. Let me just figure out my Skype situation, which is always always an issue here. Let's go. Marcellus, how are you, brother? Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Make sure you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Hold on, hold on. Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. I think I had a, a setting that had my other microphone on, so you couldn't hear me at first. How are you on this Friday night, bro? Hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be alive, man. So I'm, like, I'm happy to be here, happy to be here with you, and, and grateful for this opportunity. Awesome. So 
First of all, why don't you tell the people, I, I, I kind of gave them a primer, but you are involved in the city of Newark, right, in urban agriculture and also in beekeeping. But why don't you give them a little mini quick biography? Like, where are you from? You're a Jersey guy, I think, a Newark dude. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What got you into that uh, that discipline? Yeah, so uh, Newark native. I grew up in the South Ward, graduated from university, high school. You know, I started actually started on a different trajectory. I've always been kind of inclined to work with youth, work with children, just because growing up, seeing everything I've seen in North, you know, our young people always need a lot of love and attention. So I've always gravitated to trying to work with youth. Yep. So I actually recently, uh, during the pandemic in 2020, graduated from Seton Hall University uh, with a degree in Africana Studies and Social Work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, upon graduation, you know, it, it was so crazy because, you know, college is such a big moment in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, I, I worked, you know, relatively hard while I was in school. So to graduate during the pandemic, I really, you know, had some big questions to answer in terms of like, you know, what am I going to do to sustain myself? What is there for me to do to sustain myself? Right. Yes. You know, yeah. And, um, you know agriculture and beekeeping specifically, you know, it really just called my name. You know, people are always asking me, you know, what was it that really triggered it? What was the catalyst? And, you know, it was really just like a lot of small conversations. Uh, you know, you can have a conversation here, a conversation there. Next thing you know, you're seeing something on, 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 on your computer or something like that. And, you know, the, the curiosity really just, you know, triggered this interest in me. And before I knew it, you know, the research has led me to, you know, food is really the future. And, and I started to learn more about how our food systems you know, really don't, don't serve us the best right now. They're really driven by capitalism. So I wanted to do something different to really, you know, allow people to get, you know, greater access to quality nutritional uh, of food, right? you know, for a good price. And, and, you know, here we are. So now when you say, too, that people don't have access to, to more nutritious foods, what is kind of give me the 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 philosophical and I'm sure there there is a lot of it out there the ph- philosophical approach the angle to why does why should we be interested in urban agriculture and why is urban agriculture uh, kind of a catalyst for you know more nutritious food and, and what is it what does it teach what does it convey to the people in those communities about nutrition and about you know kind of self sustainability. Okay, great question. So I, I think I like to start from, you know, everyone's standard and uh, frame of reference, which is food, eating. Right. We all eat every day to nourish our body, to give us energy to, you know, perform whatever tasks we, we really need to. However, you know, through time, our relationship with food has become so distorted in a big way. Like I mentioned earlier with capitalism. So you have commercial agriculture, which, you know, doesn't really intake or account for practices that are good for the land or sometimes even the best for our bodies. Right. It's really about driving profit. Right. When we talk about urban agriculture. So, you know, we're bringing our food sources closer to us. So, you know, they're not going through any process where, you know, we're importing them from, you know, miles and miles away. That's something that affects the quality of food. You know, now we have more control over what we're growing, what we're growing in a city environment. So, you know, like for me, for example, I'm big into like a lot of popular vegetables like cucumbers, broccoli, beans, um, squash, you know, a lot of right. popular things that we have, you know. But it's foods that people, you know, uh, would normally see, you know, when, if they're going to make it just a regular simple salad. Because especially in the hood, there's, there's a lot of things to address in terms of like uh, what people have the palate for, you know, and, and what people really, you know, 
uh, are going to actually eat because food waste is a big deal too, especially also yes. in the city. Yes. So we're bringing together a lot of these different themes. You know, it is so many moving pieces to your point about sustainability, but you know, having more control over what we're growing, right? It gives us more access to you know control our entire distribution process. So you know what we're cooking, you know yes. what we're um, saving, you know, as in like money from not going to the grocery store, but also yeah. saving in terms of how do you preserve your food to make it stretch longer. So it's it's a long conversation that I'll be honest, even me, I'm learning things every day. Right. But I think what I've done right now is really kind of gotten ahead of things, you know. So COVID or you know the, the coronavirus, especially when it first popped up, it kind of uh, exploited, you know, some areas where we're weak, and our food systems is definitely yes. one of those areas where we could use a lot of attention in terms of just you know making things more efficient making things uh, easier, making things make more sense, you know, between, you know, consumers and even producers. So let me ask you this, because that's a great point. I mean, we, we did see the vulnerability of our food systems, and we're currently seeing the vulnerability of our supply chain with food. And by localizing, which I guess we've really localized food production for what, millions of years, and only relatively recently have we engaged, as you put it, in this capitalistic structure where it's coming through you know, various supply chains. Let me ask you this, when you have, with urban farming, first in the present sense, and, and further with the vision, you know, long term, how does that, how do you distribute that? Is there, you know, money exchange involved? Is it more of like a, a, an altruistic endeavor? Tell us about how it works now as far as distribution and financing and how what the vision is for the future. Is it more localized? How does that work? What does that look like? And, and you know, that's a amazing question just because, you know, I'm going to be able to provide some direct insight into, you know, not just where we're at now, but even some of the challenges, you know, that, that really affect, you know, with what you're, what you're speaking of. Right. So just to get more in depth when it comes to funding, for example. Now, there's various funding sources, you know, depending on um, the structure. Like for me, for example, I'm a for-profit. So whereas a lot of, you know, food-like organizations operate under nonprofit structure, which allows them to be uh, access to more funding. Right, yes. I'm even going with a for-profit structure. So that requires me to... Uh, kind of have like, you know, detailed business models and structures for how I'm going to you know, be able to, you know, create revenue from my food products. Yes. Uh, what I've learned is, you know, it's really not just always just the raw uh, food, what you can make, like in terms of what you produce, like for me, example, uh, honey from the bees. Yes. It's really the value added product. So what you're able to, you know, uh, actually produce into a product that you can now uh, monetize. Yes. But, in Newark, it's very interesting, you know, because we are dealing with trying to, you know, have the right space because it's emerging, like you said, it's emerging in our in our city environment. Right. So we deal with having the right space to actually adequately grow yes. the amount of food that we need to yes. be able to now get to points where we're able to distribute it at a scale. Now we're really monetizing it. So in these early stages, we, we've had to really, you know, in my experience, is get people interested, you know, so an important part of business is your customer, customer discovery. That's right, talk right. To the people who you're really going to, you know, be trying to reach, you know, with these products. So, you know, in a, in a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of our people are really coming into a more conscious state of mind in terms of health and nutrition. Mm-hmm. So for many times, 
since we're talking about access, yes. for me at my garden, a lot of the gardens and people I work with, in some cases, we'll make food available just to show people that, you know, this is about first and foremost, well, first, first and foremost, us nourishing our bodies, yes. coming together as a community, developing skills, you know, it's really those things that we want to emphasize first. But now, in terms, like you said, looking into the future, uh-huh. we also want to standardize to make it more effective so we're able to feed more people, so we're able to employ more people. Yes. Create, you know, economic avenues. Yes. You know, now jobs and skills are, are being circulated within our community. So, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, in, in, in an interesting place right now, you know, with the city growing and with, you know, urban farming just gaining popularity. We're trying to create, you know, more capacity to really, you know, take things to the next level and help more people. That's really fascinating. And I, and I understand a lot of that. And I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, tell me about, and I want to get in, I want to go that angle a little more in a minute and you'll see where I'm going. But first tell me about the B cause I know you have apiary in the sky and I didn't even know what that term meant until I met you when I looked it up and did my research, but tell me about a beekeeping in general. I want to know and like, why are bees so important? What's the issues that are facing bees now? And then tell me about your personal endeavor and, and you know, what beekeeping is about in general and then how you kind of took it by the reins and how that applies to urban farming and things like that. Because I think it's fascinating. I don't think enough people pay attention to it. Yeah, no, I, I feel like it's almost by design that, that a lot of us um, – it's, it's so funny that the pieces that are always so important, you know, are always so, so underlooked and so underappreciated, just like our teachers. Mm-hmm. Our teachers or our nurses are like the backbone of society, basically kind of, you know, so important in so many things, but we kind of, you know, sometimes we take them for granted. So I think beekeepers and bees in a lot of ways are very similar. So, you know, like I said, the more research I, I began doing, mm-hmm. I started to see that, you know, like pretty soon, everybody's going to be, you know, trying to figure out a way to, to get into the industry, you know, not only for the, uh, you know, uh, monetary benefits, but also just in terms of like where we're going in terms of climate change and how the environment is becoming a, a bigger topic of, of people's, you know, interest and, and, and people are starting to invest more. Yes. Now thinking about the bees expressly, what really drew me to it and is really creating a lot of, you know, buzz, no pun intended, is something called uh, colony collapse disorder. Mm-hmm, so this mm-hmm. is where you see a lot of those head- big headlines about bees disappearing, bees, you know, populations are dropping at alarm rates. And there's many theories for why it's happening. Mm-hmm. One of the most popular theories is that uh, the bees are affected by pesticides and herbicides mm-hmm. from either, you know, commercial operations or even like, you know, we have our golf course here at Weekway. Yes. They may treat the grass there. They may treat the premises there with certain things to ward off pests. Right. And by way, our bees are you know, coming, collecting nectar and pollen from those same plants. And then they're bringing those, those contaminants back into the hive. And, and the entire hive is suffering from, you know, being contaminated from ingesting those pesticides. So that's the primary source of, of why we're seeing, you know, the bees being affected um, their population being affected so drastically. Next, I would probably go into, as I mentioned, the commercial agriculture where they actually use bees to pollinate a lot of big crops. So what a lot of people are familiar with is in California, they have their almond uh, plantation. Uh-huh. And it's a big uh, source of uh, income for a lot of beekeepers is taking their bees 
opportunities uh, of uh, plantations where they're able to uh, help with the pollination of these plants. However, you have a lot of bees coming from different places, different beekeepers, so you right. have different routines for their pest management, and there's a lot of uh, room for cross-contamination. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I never even thought about yeah. that. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And the more I get into it, I mean, like I said, capitalism being the driving force on a lot of operations nowadays, you would think that, you know, we would introduce uh, some more sustainable practices. So now transitioning to where I come in, you know, I really saw it as a, 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 a under underappreciated industry. Yeah. Where we're lacking in innovation, we're lacking in research, we're lacking in, and specifically in terms of what I bring to the field, representation of actually, you know, black and brown people in the industry itself. So, you know, wherever folks want to, want to, you know, go, I feel like there's room for folks to really expand and, and really, you know, be creating more opportunities to work with these, to create the, you know, these food sources that are so necessary for us, but also just to expand, you know, and research or inventions because you know i always tell people one of the things that really inspired me and, and, and let me know that this was going to be an industry that i would devote my life to was reflecting on you know the current hive configuration that we use mm -hmm. called the langstroth hive and it's from a gentleman named william langstroth uh american man and he made this in 1860. And okay still, even though it's been adapted and updated you know, we're still moving with that same um, mold that he set for us. You know, at this point, it's been centuries ago, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I really want to, you know, just show yeah. people that, you know, like I said, I'm coming from a youth and like uh, like more um, academic background. Right. But I mean, everything is kind of pointed to, you know, this is really where the future is headed, you know, being in control of our food, our commodities, our products, you know, having access to this knowledge these trades, being able to work with the environment in a, in a sustainable, you know, healthy, positive way. You know, that's really what, what we're really trying to drive for and, and really create some some really, really positive um, ripples where people really feel like their environment, because in Newark, I didn't talk about it, but, you know, we, we see, you know, the condition of Newark is changing very rapidly. Right. So we, we've dealt with Newark, you know, being dirty and, and they're really just being a, a real negligence to a lot of environmental yes. uh, uh, situations. From like the river. Homes yes. The, just any number of quality of life concerns that, that, you know, we really want to take that into consideration as well while we're talking about trying to, you know, you know, help change the environment. Well, I got two questions too. And one of them, I was already going to go to the, the, the angle of the, the black beekeepers, what I'm, I'm hitting that. And I think you'll like where I'm going to go with that. Cause I've already been thinking about it. But first I want to ask you this question. When we talk about, you know, the cross contamination, but the economic, uh, you know, advantageousness of lending your bees out for crops and, just this, this multifaceted, as you alluded to, this multifaceted, complex, you know, framework interweave, like you got golf courses, you got, you know, almond farms in California, you got beekeepers. Is there a solution, and, I, and you don't have to have it now, but is there a path to a solution as far as protecting bees, allowing for profit of, you know, beekeepers and agricultural entities, and localization. I mean, is there a path forward that we could come up with if we were to put our brains to it as far as all those goals? 
absolutely. I mean, there, there's a number of things. I mean, I, I could shoot off, you know, uh, examples of potential things that could, you know, kind of circumvent some of those those issues. Right. But it really just comes from a commitment to, you know, preserving the environment and conservation. Once people begin to lead with that, then everything else becomes to come in place because sustainability, people complain about it being expensive or, you know, uh, it being, you know, like uh, extra work, but that's only up front. Right. Once you start to see the benefits of what, you know, you'll produce uh, with, with time, then you see, you see why it, it's such a, a good move to, you know, focus on sustainability and, and things that just make sense in the long run. Because either way, you know, to your point, we're going to have to th- find something to do once we have all these problems right. that begin to cascade because we kind of ignored them and haven't made, you know, uh, problem solving as part of the commitment. So I think it's agriculturalists, beekeepers, right. uh, producers, just dis- distributors. I think folks really coming together and really saying, you know, well, there are things that clearly aren't working that we need to adapt or we need to reform. And I mean, I think everything is just localizing things. So instead of having, you know, the beekeepers coming from or migrating from different parts of the country, you know, things should be more regional. Because at that point, then it'd be a lot easier to contain. Like, let's say if we had a certain outbreak, yes. we would contain things a little bit better. Yes. So that's just one small example of how, you know, we can mitigate some of those issues just with better planning and just better communication. It makes a ton of sense. And and I, would you say that the localization of the food sources would be advantageous in the long run because it would prevent, like you just said, essentially like nation, nationwide outbreaks and things when we have issues in the supply chain or in the agricultural chain? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, for example, uh, you know, it's interesting because when I think about uh, expanding, mm-hmm. you know, you want to be able to uh, have your product, you know, in target and shop right you know be able to you know yes. get that recognition and, and all those different things but when you reflect on you know what's really needed mm-hmm. what the world really needs you know it's not about you know it's quality over quantity so I, i'd rather have my products in places that are more local like Newark and around our tri-state area mm-hmm. than be able to try and ship to california or texas what i really want to do is i really want to if someone's interested in my product that is you know uh, out of state, I'd want to connect them to the the nearest person in their area. You know, yes. then we're really creating better chambers of commerce. Yes, and, you know, everybody's able to, to feel the benefits of that. So, so here's what I want to delve into a little bit, and it's a little. I mean, it's a more of a political show anyway. So. You know, and if anybody goes back and listens to this show from the beginning because they want to hear the your interview or whatever, you'll see I'm this vehement centrist. You know, I don't love the Democrats. I don't love the Republicans. I'm in the middle. I, but one thing I care about a, a whole hell of a lot is, you know, you people may say I'm capitalistic, but I don't, I'm not capitalistic on a grand scale. I'm I'm capitalistic on a on a small micro scale, and I'm also very very vehement about. You know, I think our current socio-political dialogue misses a lot of black empowerment and, you know, autonomy, economic and politically, by focusing on certain things and missing others. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you're an African-American person moving into a space that's predominantly and traditionally been a white space, beekeeping, and you've mentioned that. What has it meant to you to kind of, you know, what what does what you do say about this, you know, kind of grand philosophy and debate that you are 
taking the reins of, of your own product, your own philosophy, you're monetizing it, or the goal is to monetize it. You are operating within that space and you're a grand innovator. You know, what does that mean to you? And what should that mean in the grander scope of there are spaces that young black people can move into and empower themselves and their communities and take charge of that are, you know, seldom talked about, you know, when we discuss these things. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this interview just because, you know, I think it's always good to kind of check in and, and even for myself to put things in perspective in terms of my larger goals and, and the values that really drive my, my business and my company. Right. So it's so funny that you, you, you know, we were taking uh, uh, this uh, going down the political road because mm-hmm. I've actually been doing a lot of research. I, I mentioned this to you too. I've been doing a lot of research about, you know, getting back to my roots mm-hmm. in agriculture because sometimes it feels like, like even though I have my community of beekeepers, farmers, and you know food producers, mm-hmm. you know sometimes when you're in the rat race, you kind of you know you can get a little bit, you can lose touch yes. because you know you're, you're spending all this time outdoors or you know trying to you know gain capital or, or you're just doing all these different things. Mm-hmm. So I've been learning more about Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, she's a woman who is very famous for starting the women's congress the black women's congressional congress mm-hmm. and you know creating opportunities for uh, not only black women but black people to uh, uh vote and, and and really express their their voice in terms of how they're being treated yes i've been learning more about george washington carver yeah who is really known for you know uh the peanuts everybody knows george washington <laughs> yes. carver, the peanuts. and you know we even have i went to george washington carver when i was a kid so this has been a surreal moment for me because it was one of the worst moments of my life just, you know, going to school there and, and between fourth and fifth grade and, mm-hmm. you know, not always fitting in, you know, and, and, and it just being a very chaotic environment where learning was not what we were coming there to do. And right. learning his legacy and, and how, how much he contributed to the world mm-hmm. in, in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So I say all that to say that it's important that we observe history and how far we've come mm-hmm. from, you know, just being, you know, three as a person in this country from, you know, not having opportunities, not being able to do things. I think a lot of our people sometimes like almost how when the emancipation proclamation happened and folks didn't actually know that they were free. You know, I feel like we are mm-hmm. still kind of fighting that ideology where mm-hmm. it's like folks, you can be anything in the world. Mm-hmm. Now folks have kind of, you know, been drawn to what's going to make them the most money respectfully because our livelihoods have been compromised for so long mm-hmm. that you know money is important but people need to you know focus on trades on you know commodities on things that actually like what are we really spending our money on you know where where is it the really the value really exists yes when i focused on a lot of our 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 our, our thinkers and our, our predecessors like george washington carver uh Fannie hamer one of my favorite heroes, Harriet Tubman, mm-hmm. you know, they all understood, you know, the value within our freedom of having, you know, being able to make our own choices, being able to do things that make us feel alive and, and, and feel like, you know, we're a part of, you know, the best parts of what life has to offer. So for me, getting into this endeavor where, you know, we're becoming close to nature, we're really getting in tune with our bodies and our, our communities, our neighbors, it's really about just promoting what is going to be the most transformative and improve the, the quality of life for black, brown, white, you know, 
anybody, you know, because we all are, are here together. So yes. I hope that, you know, the work that we're doing is as impactful for, you know, white people, just as it is, you know, for black people, even though we do have this emphasis on, you know, black and brown, mm-hmm. you know, the work should be touching everyone. Yeah. And I think, I, I think just as my personal preference, like the, 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 it should never even have to be preferenced, right? Like it should be black and brown and white people should rock with it and, and, you know, support it and buy the product because if it helps them, it helps everybody. And it's, it's, it's okay to be empowering and proudly black and brown and also have white people patronize it. Like this idea that we can't do that is, is toxic. So I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, how has that been in terms of have you in your experience so far seen the empowerment or the, you know, the, how do I want it? Like, like people like, have you seen younger people of color take to what you're doing and have you seen a positive impact there where maybe they weren't even aware of the, the discipline and the possibilities and the contributions and you've seen them kind of before your eyes become empowered through agriculture and beekeeping in those things. Have you seen that? So yeah, there's, there's definitely a range. Like there's, I always love to tell the story about one young man. He always walks past the garden. Uh-huh. I'm out there, and when I tell you, just his reaction alone is enough for me to continue to do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. He gets a huge smile on his face. He's asking questions. It's like I can't even contain. I can't even, you know, keep up with him. But when you just see that, just that, that, that really that love, you know, yes. that, that children really like, you know, really they they just show us, you know, what we're all really capable of. And when you see that, you know, you just want to do more to, to kind of be, engage it and make sure that he has opportunities to really, you know get deeper into his interest of beekeeping, farming, you know, herbalism, all those different things. The the parallel I really want to make is, you know, I know, man, you are into music. Yes. So you know a lot about how music has been influential in our communities. Yes. And, you know, you see how a lot of people grow up watching either the dope boys in the streets or, you know, yes. folks who are, 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 you know, kind of doing their thing. And I feel like it's, it's the same way. I actually had a beekeeper tell, tell me one time, making jokes, like talking about how this is a legal dope game. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think we have to make it flashy and, and not compromising, you know, the the substance of what we're trying yes. to do. But we got to make it, you know, attractive, you know, show people, hey, you can make money being a farmer. Yeah. You can make money being a beekeeper. You can make an honest living. And not only that, you can help the environment. You can, you know, you can teach people and you can make people more aware about things. So we just really have to work, you know, on, on, on the branding. On, on the message that we're sending with these things to really not only engage young people, like, like I, all the young people I know, they're on TikTok. So yes. I, now I gotta get on TikTok and <laughs> yes. I gotta meet them where they're at. Yes. Make sure, you know, that we're making funny stuff that is culturally uh, and, 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 you know, to the age of, age appropriate and, and relevant. So, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of getting them in, in, in so we could all, you know, benefit together. That, make, that all makes a ton of, ton of sense, a ton of sense. And yeah. I, I agree with you, I think, you know, you, you can, you know, co-opt certain cultural things that make sense. And when I say culture, I mean American culture to try to meld, you know, positive things into American culture to get people pumped up about doing, you know, going down those endeavors. It makes sense. Um, tell me about Apiary in the Sky and how what you just said, like your, you know, your appeal and things how do you try to incorporate that into your growing business and i know it's kind of still a work in progress in terms of it's fluid and you're always developing you're always innovating but how do you try to implement these philosophies 
into your personal uh, business and how is that going? Yeah, I love being able to expand more on that. So it's been, it's definitely been a journey. Mm -hmm. I think I've learned throughout this experience that, you know, I'm truly, you know, I have that entrepreneurial spirit, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, I'm I'm not afraid to make mistakes in certain ways because I I know what's at stake and I know the value of, of, you know, of what we're trying to bring to the city. So, you know, it's been a very exciting process for me trying new things stepping outside of my comfort zone. Right. Um, and with that, social media has been a big thing for me. I remember there was a time where I really took a step back from social media. Right. And I really started to kind of get into my, like, I started to kind of be a little bit of a geezer. I'm like, you know what? It's too, it's too much. Jim <laughs> saying like, even TikTok. I still haven't been on TikTok, but I'm just like. I'm scared of it. <laughs> yes. I'm telling you right now, um, I'm scared of it. I don't go near it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, you know, again, I, I have to, you know, go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. I look at our predecessors, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Martin King, or even like I'm really big on George Washington Carver right now. I just watched. I love that. Movie. I'm gonna have to go research him more because you're bringing that to my attention. Quite frankly. Oh, oh well, don't even worry. You know, I'm gonna have an event in the next like two weeks where you know I'm gonna have a physical location where people can come to watch documentary. Beautiful. Have a discussion. I'm, I'm coming. Gonna make it uh, virtual too. Beautiful. No, I'll come in person if, if I can. And, you know, I, that's Absolutely. beautiful. And I'll make sure the word gets out on that, too. That that sounds Absolutely. great. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, no problem. Um, yeah, you know, taking those values that they really share with us and thinking about all the challenges that they went through, mm-hmm. just, just to be able to sit in the room sometimes, like before mm-hmm. they even had the opportunity to make businesses, to mm-hmm. do this, to get property, to do anything. Sometimes they were just trying to get in the room yes. to get the knowledge. Yes. So, you know, I always let that be a driving force for me to, you know, whenever I get tired, whenever I get lazy, whenever I'm unfocused, I always remember that, you know, there's a lot at stake here. You know, this is the next piece in the puzzle in time to really, you know, actualize all of our destinies together and, and where we're in a place where, you know, some of our problems aren't as much problems. So I put a lot of myself into the company. So that means, like, I'm really into art. I'm into, you know, mm-hmm. culture. I'm mm-hmm. into, you know, curating experiences for people that, you know, are something of substance. You know, I'm not just into having an event where, you know, we have ticket sales and, you know, it, you know, it's this and that. No, everything's carefully, you know, yes. put together to make sure that people have a positive, you know, interaction with nature, with bees, with honey. And I've just been kind of keeping that going, you know, at, you know, as we get more. So, you know, as our funding increases, you know, we've been able to scale to reach more people and, you know, just trying to keep that going. Um, I do a lot with social media. I do a lot with uh, product design mm-hmm. because, you know, they're, they're, you know, I talked a lot about capitalism earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it's like when things aren't balanced. Now, we see yes. capitalism drive a lot of our systems and that doesn't work. Right. So I think that, you know, like, I think I'm always surprised when I release a new item or something like that uh-huh. and it sells out. Yes, you know, or, you know, or whatever the case is. But now I'm in a position where I can use the capital that I get Mm -hmm. to make certain decisions that, you know, stray away from, you know, the profit based or or driven models, you know, Mm -hmm. I have to use money as a tool, you know, but I I, I try and make sure I stay balanced. So we're always doing, you know, philanthropic or, you know, we're encouraging other entrepreneurs or even young people, you know, to kind of come together and share fellowship. So everything is very, very, very entrenched in the values, being transparent when it comes mm-hmm. to money, 
you know, uh, even when I work with other entrepreneurs, teaching people. So, you know, I'm very weary of, you know, people taking advantage of other people when it comes yes. to business. I think a lot of people have business situations where it's like, I've, I've observed people want to, you know, they'll tell you the least you need to know, or they'll, you know, the movements will be all over the place. I try and kind of synchronize, create synergy, mm -hmm. open doors, um, open book, you can ask me anything. And, you know, I even challenge myself sometimes when I feel like I'm, I'm trying to be too much a control freak to, to kind of take a step back and yeah. make sure that I'm allowing space for people to come into my vision and make it their own as well. Cause that, that's really what you want to, to change culture and, you know, influence, you know, change. You have to be able to let people, you know, uh, see what that means to other people and help them actualize that vision as well and really take a leadership role. So, I know, I'm sorry, I know that was long-winded, but no. I'm really excited about this stuff, so I appreciate this platform. No, and I love it, and you're getting a lot of love in the chat, by the way. I have a teacher that's in the chat, so your little props and teachers did well. I got people giving stats on uh, minority farmers, people saying that you know minority farmers need more access to the legal system, people talking about almonds and how they're draining the water on the West Coast, because I got a West Coast listener. I mean, you got a lot of props in the chat. You're, doing, you're killing it, so that's all good. Um and I think what you said is important, right? Like we have these, I think part of the problem with our political and social discourse now, and this is just me going on my little logic and Larry thing, but it's like we put everything into these bulky, broad frameworks and we don't allow for any complexity. And one of the things you said is like, yeah, like you get certain capital, but then you could reinvest it responsibly. And it's like everything we have is a tool. Like capitalism itself is a tool. You know, uh, entrepreneurship is a tool. You know, beekeeping is a tool. Social prowess is a tool. We can choose to use them positively or negatively. The problem is so many people have used them negatively. But if more people took the reins and used them positively, we could change the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's it's. It's fascinating that you're kind of drawing attention to that and just your whole philosophy in an area that not everybody's totally familiar with, but that can employ all of those things and make a real big difference. It's inspiring, quite frankly, to me. Thank you, man. Thank you. I mean, it, it, it takes all of us, even mm -hmm. folks like you who are able to recognize and, and, and even give me a space to be able to share this with other people. It really does take all of us. So I, I just appreciate you know, how we all come together to really, you know, make, make this a reality. Right. No, I agree. And, and, you know, one of the things is with me, you know, just being like an attorney, um, you know, you know, I was a musician and I was this and I was that and, and, and I became an attorney and you know, the kind of attorney I am. So you get some pushback on that, but it's like, I use that mechanism for so much good. You know, sometimes people don't realize like, nah, I'm, I'm, uh, commandeering that position to do good we need more of that instead of just yeah. oh i reject it because it is what it is not nah, like take that space over and and bend it to the will of the good you know like we can do that yeah yeah and, and there's been times where i've gotten discouraged along my, my journey along my path for sure i think many people at different times you know mm -hmm. like we all have our fire and then we have some you know, moments of course. that kind of humble us at times mm -hmm. and you know definitely make the world feel a little bit smaller mm -hmm. but you just you just see you know jeff bezos yeah months. You, you see these people they don't stop you know what i'm saying you, you see like like uh, so not want to say our, our enemies but more so our opposition so people who have aligned themselves in different ways right you know it, it's like they're 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 continuing so i feel like in a lot of systems i find so people who are in chat and viewing you'll find a lot of uh, minority farmers 
we lost, a lot of us suffer from lack of organization. So that's right. something I'm trying to bring to the beekeeping space where it's like standardized, standardized, standardized. Where's everyone's registrations at? Where's everyone's business plans? Where's everyone's yes. websites? Where, where's everyone's things that we need to be able to, to qualify as bigger players or like move to how some of these larger corporations do? And again, like we said, not in terms of their values, right. but in terms of actually how they physically, you know, move we want to kind of imitate that and 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 be more responsible as, as you put it yeah and i see that that's why like you know i think people might misconstrue like all oh, my centers i'm just looking for innovative ways to empower and advance people you know and we can all bring that to the table like you said in a communal sense like when the people i have on the show i always say that i learn something from the people i bring on i learned a lot from you today that i didn't even know like i had no frame of reference for what's going on with bee populations or how you know things are pollinating i had no frame of reference and now i have that frame of reference which i can extrapolate upon and learn as can all the listeners we got to be doing more of that collaboration marcellus i'm going to ask you kind of as the last question if people want to support you, people want to learn more about you. I'm going to share your, a bunch of your links and stuff throughout the week as I promote this show. But yeah, aside from that, if people want to support you or they want to support beekeeping in general, I mean, what are what are mechanisms they can use, and how's the best best way to support you and and your endeavors? What's your kind of advocate for? What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, thank you. So. You know, interesting enough, I'm actually preparing for uh, just to, to embark on a lot of big journeys. So now I'm going to be opening a subsequent nonprofit with mm-hmm. keepers from all over the country. So mm-hmm. that's a big move that I'm really excited about. And we're just working right now behind the scenes to, you know, get all our paperwork in order, refine the mission, and make sure that we're going to be able to do everything that we're gearing up to do. So forming that nonprofit and, and getting folks support in that is going to be important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm developing a few different products that we're going to release towards my birthday out in December. Okay. And you know, I'm going to take the month of November and a little bit December to kind of, you know, get all the shipping and, and different things like that together. Uh, I think the main thing that folks can do right now is really just uh, follow my social media. It's like that. I'm always actively posting, you know, different events and, and ways to engage there. I'm very active on social media just because uh, as a, a small business, it's a good way for me to be able to, you know, interact with uh, uh, the people that I work with and people who want to support. And you see, I'm very accessible. You know, it's easy yeah. to, you know, mess with me whenever and have a conversation or really see, you know, people have different skills, different things they bring to the table. And I'm really, you know, uh, flexible and I'm always looking for ways to, you know, just like this podcast, I had a great time. You can, you can, you have any time for things like this, you know, and, and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm always looking to, you know, bring out the best in what people have to offer because we all, you know, have, have something else to bring to the table. So however folks are, would, would like to support, I, even if I don't have, you know, I know other beekeeping nonprofits right now who are currently fundraising. So let's say if folks want to support monetarily, it right. may not even be me, but if you support someone in my network, it's, 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 it's touching me too. So I have a number of places where I can send folks to be able to, you know, support and engage with me however they would like. That's and awesome. I'll, I'll keep you updated with that. Yeah, keep me updated with that. When you launch a nonprofit, definitely keep me updated. I mean, as you know, and we'll talk off the air. I mean, I'm involved with a lot of philanthropic things in Newark and 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 things like that. I would harness certainly my what whatever I can socially to try to get people involved in that. And and around Christmas time, if you're launching, that's even better. So I'll share everything too and, and disseminate it. And by the way, in the chat, one of our listeners in Florida is saying 
this interview is inspiring. There are not many real visionaries and leaders anymore. So obviously they're alluding that you're a visionary and a leader. That's dope. Um, so, I mean, look, it's, it's just, it's a great interview and I'm glad because bro, I hyped you up hard last week and I hyped you up this week and I'm glad you're here because it's just, this is what the show's about, man. Like it's, I do my little rant and my logic thing. And then I bring people on that are living the life of like movers and shakers locally who are doing, making an impact. That's all we can do is like, you know, local people make an impact in our little area and arena and hope that that permeates beyond us, you know, and that's what you're doing. And it's just dope. It's great. Yeah. So from the moment we met, you know, I, I already knew that. So, I'm glad that, you know, more time you got to see what I do and we've been in collaborate in, in, in these mutually beneficial ways. So I'm just looking forward to, you know, seeing more of how this relationship flourishes. And it's just a testament to the work. You know, it brings people together. It makes people feel good. And I feel good. So, you know, it, this has been just as rewarding for me, too. So uh, I, I definitely appreciate it. Love it, Mr. Counts. And uh, so I'm going to open up for calls in a little bit. I'll let you go. I'll share all your uh, links that you sent me and I'll share the links you already sent me previously after this show. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to be promoting this show all week. So I'll constantly be, you're going to be tagged quite a bit. So just get used to it, you know, and I'll, uh, I'll keep, uh, disseminating this show and all of your links and, and your stories. And when you release, you know, when you form the nonprofit with all the things you're doing, I'll, I'll disseminate that through my personal and my podcast websites and social media. And then I'll have you back on. And then you and I off okay. the air will talk and do more things anyway, because obviously, you know, we share some serious core principles. So we're going to build on that, man. And it's, it's been a pleasure yeah. having you on. I really appreciate you taking time out of your Friday night to be on here with me and my audience. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Y'all have been an absolute pleasure, man. So thanks again for having me. I look so forward to, to following up and, and taking us to the next level. Sounds good, bro. I'll talk to you very, very soon. And, and uh, hopefully people reach out soon when I when I promote this show. And I'll talk to you soon. We got to get together soon. Sounds like a plan, man. Have All a right. great night. You um, too. Have a nice weekend. You too. Bye. You guys see what I have on this show, man. Like, people may not at first glance understand my social philosophies, my political philosophies, like who I am as a person, like who I associate with. That was probably one of the best interviews I've had on this show. And I've had some impressive people on, on this show. Because you identify people who have visions, who are really, you know, we constantly, like we talked about before the interview, when I was going on my, you know, excited, emotional thing, I meant it. Like, I don't want to be bogged down by what some partisan side or the other is saying. I want to be around innovative, outside the box, empowering, inspiring people who are going to change this narrow narrative that we operate within and expand upon it and make it so much bigger than we relegate ourselves to. And somebody like Marcellus Counts, like that's why I, now you know why I was so hyped to have him on last week. Now you know. Because the guy is inspired. I mean, he's he's doing things you don't even think about. And the level of entrepreneurship and empowerment and just the the benefit to us as a society is great. It's grand. And when I say great, I don't mean great like, oh, it's great. I mean great like on a grand scale. 
on a grand scale. You know, so imagine if we got, imagine if we got all of the people that, you know, I bring on like Elliot Fant, Marcellus Counts, me, Neil, you know, Hold on, we got some here from Bree. Funny how everyone that tells me the story of the day they met Larry Crane always starts with, I knew from the second we met, and then there's a story as to why Larry brings all this network of people together. You know what, Vree? That's why I love you, my bro. That's why I switch it to Fridays to get Vree on here more often. Because Vree and I met that way. And it's like, dude, from the second we met, like, yeah, like I'm bringing people from Arizona to Florida to Jersey to Newark, to Freehold, to Louisiana, North Carolina, to, to together in this conversation. And it's starting off small, and, and I've blown up on, on my sports podcast, so I, trust me, I'm going to take a, a Christmas hiatus. <laughs> and CLR funding, a.k.a. my father says when I first met Larry Crane, he was crying. All right, great. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to take a holiday hiatus. And when I do that, I'm going to implement some changes technologically to the show that are going to allow for a broader audience. I think, I think I've kind of found the key to attracting a broader audience and, and, and us collectively, not just me, but us collectively, the core people, the people who have been on the interviews, whether it's Marcellus, Elliot, Neil, Sean Bracken, uh, Charles Riley, uh, you know, the, the various people who have been on the show, Rick, you know, and all of us who talk all the time, we are bringing ourselves to a bigger platform. And, you know, I think it's important because I think what we're building on, I got a lot of years left in me. Who knows where this thing will be in 15, 20 years, but we're trying to spread a positive and a logical and an objective message and we're trying to do it the right way and we're trying to diversify our opinions and our things like that and I, we never should be glued down to one side or the other or to be limited to these political ads or the way people want to classify and pigeonhole and put us into silos so i mean i hope everybody enjoyed the interview with marcellus i knew you would that's why i had him on that's why i was so excited um, there's a lot of people in this world that are doing a lot of great things that have a lot of great ideas that think in objective outside the box intellectual ways. And, uh, it's really something, it's really something. And it's, it's really dope. So, you know, I loved it. <laughs> I just want to end on that note because I don't think we need to really go into anything else unless it's just given Marcellus props at this point. <laughs> um, that's that's really where i'm at this playlist i hope you enjoyed the playlist it, it kind of repeated itself from the intro song so now i'm going to go back and i'm going to put the first two songs that were in the intro i'm going to add it to the last two songs in the playlist since we already you know went down and this guy trying to talk about his charisma and smarts and all this stuff and here we go here we go. But I'm, I'm going to play you guys out on uh, on the playlist and uh, I'm going to wind down the show. And next week, next week, as is scheduled next week, I have another incredible uh, person from the Newark area on a person who um, has done a lot of great work in our schools and in our uh, political spectrum 
and who does a lot of great work for the community. He's scheduled to be on the next show, uh, Reggie Bledsoe, and I'm looking forward to him being on. Um, and until then, enjoy. If you're in the Northeast, I love this crisp fall weather. I got a, a, a Rutgers uh I got a Rutgers game tomorrow. I'm excited against Wisconsin. Rutgers is four and four, doing all right. And I'm going to enjoy the weekend, and I'm going to enjoy next week. And then I'll be back with you guys the following week. And I can't wait for that. I'm going to have Reggie on. And, yes, uh, there is a guest that we are going to have on before the Christmas hiatus, if, if all things happen the way I want them to, before the Christmas hiatus. Um, from the deep south to give us a perspective on what he's seen down there. He's been down there most of his life, but he's a Logic and Larry listener. So he thinks like us, but he's down there. And I'm looking forward to that uh, soon too. So I'm going to play you guys out on uh, this DD Bridgewater joint. And then if you like the playlist, make sure you go check it out because I post it with every show, which was Siren's idea. Glad I did because once Siren told me to do that, then I started doing it and people are counting on it. like, oh, where's the playlist? Where's the playlist? Great idea from Siren. Uh, and anyway, I will talk to all you guys in two weeks. This will be available on every major podcast, podcast platform. So for those listening now and for those who are going to listen later recorded, tell your friends, tell your family about this show. Uh, you can download it on any major platform from Stitcher to Apple to iTunes, iHeartRadio. We get downloads from all of those major mediums and uh it's great uh clr we'll do the conference call uh, off the air we'll do a, a test conference call just to see if it's possible we'll do it next you know when we're not doing a show we'll just test it out i could test it out easily i don't want to do it now because i'll have to edit it later and it's just a pain so uh i'll talk to all you guys very soon it was an absolute pleasure thank you to marcel's accounts for coming on please pay attention to my social media and the social media accounts for logic and larry because i'll be posting uh links to marcellus you can learn more about him and you can learn more about his uh company and all the different yeah videos and i have uh news articles and things of that nature that'll be going out so enjoy that enjoy the music and i'll talk to all you guys soon love you all god bless you all good night from larry